there will be a Q&A time at the end, I hope. My uh, voice is not normal because <coughs> of my allergies this time of year. Whenever the wind blows, my voice goes up about five octaves. And I know I'm going to smile at somebody and there's a piece of broccoli right up here someplace. <laughs> so if that happens, please tell me. <laughs> um, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. I hope you all have Bibles. If you do, you can open them to page 1823. Well, you know, whatever it is in your Bible. It's in the New Testament, uh, so it's kind of toward the back of your Bible. Um, let me tell you a little bit about the town of Ephesus, and then uh, someday you want, might want to go over to the book of Acts and uh, read in uh, chapters 16 through 20. Right along in there is when Paul is in Ephesus. The, uh, the town is on the Caister River, which is uh, today, if, if you were in uh, the country called Turkey, it would be on the west coast, almost. A little bit to the south, but uh, on the west coast of Turkey. Back then it was called Asia Minor. Uh, there was Asia Major off to the northeast of that, and then Asia Minor, and Ephesus was there. And it was a port city, even though it wasn't on the Aegean Sea, which feeds into the Mediterranean, but it was up in the mouth of a wide river. Uh, north and west of the town, a meteor had fallen from the sky. And the meteor landed on a mountain just to the northwest of town. And people all over the area saw that fall. And they believed that it was the, the star of Diana or Artemis. Uh, Diana is the Latin name, and Artemis uh, is the Greek name for this god, goddess. Uh, she was a goddess of wisdom and sex and beauty. And so around that big meteor, where it fell, they built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a huge, huge temple. And people would travel for miles uh, all over Europe to come to Ephesus to worship Diana. Now, if you go straight across the sea, the Aegean Sea from Ephesus, comes the city of Corinth. And in Corinth, they worshiped Aphrodite up on the mountain outside of Corinth. Uh, it's quite a mountain. It'd take you a day to get up there. And uh, they had up to 2,000, I call them priestitutes, you know, they were prostitute priestesses uh, up on this mountain. And they worshiped sexually, just like they did Diana. Uh, most of the ancient world, I don't know if we've ever talked about this here, but most of the ancient world worshiped fertility. And they worshiped uh, the fertility gods and goddesses. And they worshiped um, sex. Uh, the Jews in the Old Testament worshiped Baal and uh, Ashtar. We get the word uh, for our holiday, Easter, from the gods uh, of that type. Uh, 
the bunny and the eggs. That's all fertility uh, cults. Um, I don't think it's harmful to you know have egg Easter egg hunts or anything like that. I just think that kids need to realize that this is really about Jesus rising from the dead. Um, Easter Sunday morning, very early, Jesus got up. And I think the angels probably came and made his bed because uh, the Gospels all say that the stuff was folded up neatly there on the slab where Jesus' body had been. Um, but here in the city of Ephesus, people would come just like they did in Corinth. Uh, in Corinth, the actual population of the city was between one and 200,000 uh, people. But there were always half a million people there because they were worshiping Aphrodite. And there were more houses of prostitution and taverns and public baths in these cities uh, because of the worship of their gods. So when the Apostle Paul comes into the city of Ephesus, he comes into a city that is filled with idolatry. The whole economy of that part of, of Asia Minor was based on idolatry. The whole economy. People making idols. They made them out of gold and silver, and they made them out of wood and stone, and they carved them, and they sold them, and this was their income. And people would come there to, to worship Diana, buy an idol, and go home and worship Diana at home. And so when the Apostle Paul comes in <laughs> and starts preaching about an invisible God that's greater than all these gods and goddesses, there was a riot. You go back and read the book of Acts, wherever Paul went there was a revival or a riot or both, and in this city there was both. And uh, instead of beating Paul, they beat some other people in the city and uh, some other believers, and the riot went on until early afternoon when the, the city clerk came and said, the garrison of Roman soldiers has been uh, notified of your rebellion. You must go home or they'll be here. And as soon as he mentioned Roman garrison, everybody went home. But there was a lot of anger against the Apostle Paul. Uh, and so Paul remained in Ephesus for three and a half years. He was there longer than he was in any other city in the ancient world. He came back by Ephesus later on by ship and dropped off Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a good kid, but he was kind of a weak person, a weak personality, a submissive um, and so Timothy was sent by Paul to the biggest and strongest church, which was here in Ephesus. And by the way, 200 years later, the biggest building in the town was the church where people met in different homes. And the, the temple of Diana was in ruin within 200 years. The whole world, the whole culture there was changed by the gospel. Because these people had always thought that you served the gods by fertility, by sex. And when they found out that God himself, the real God, had spoken and said that sex, there's three rules for sex. 
One rule is no, no sex before marriage. The second rule is no sex outside of marriage. And the third rule is whatever both people wanted in the marriage is okay. It's very simple, three rules. But people didn't know those rules until the Apostle Paul came, and he didn't start by telling them the rules. He told them about somebody who had died for them and who had risen from the dead, and that changed everything. And he talked to them. You know, the amazing thing about Paul is in the 19th and 20th chapters of the book of Acts, Paul tells the Ephesian elders when he meets with them on the beach for the last time, and they all cry together. Paul said, I didn't hold back from telling you the whole counsel of God. I told you everything that God wants you to know. And so there's a powerful leadership here in this church. And Paul can tell these people things that he couldn't tell other people. Now, in the early manuscripts of the Ephesian letter, uh, look at the first verse. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints, and then there's a blank spot in the ancient manuscripts. Some of them say in Ephesus. Some of them are just left blank. Most scholars believe that this letter was actually written to the church in Laodicea. If you look at Turkey, about here is where Ephesus is, the Caister River. And you've got a major highway that goes up like this and comes down like this. And at the other end is Laodicea. And I believe that the original recip recipient of the letter was to Laodicea. But it made the trip through seven, if you read the seven uh, uh, churches of the book of Revelation, those are the seven churches that are right here, all established by John the Apostle. And so Paul had not been to these places at that point, so I think he wrote it to Laodicea, and the people there read it and copied it, sent it on to the next city, and the next and the next, until it ended up in the repository of the scriptures in Ephesus, which was really the leading city of all these cities. And if you've read the, the, the letter uh, the seven letters in the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 2 and 3, the first letter is to Ephesus, and the last letter is to Laodicea. And here you got Thyatira and, you know, all the cities in between that Paul, that uh, Jesus actually wrote the letters through Paul, I mean, uh, through John, the apostle, who wrote Revelation. So I think what happened is it was sent here, made the trip, and then... All the, the uh, ancient church tried to keep a repository of scripture for that community. And they would keep it in the homes of the leaders of the church. And so, you know, I don't know if you've thought about this. 367 A.D. is the first combination of the 27 book New Testament that we have. The ancient church went over 300 years without what we call the New Testament scriptures. They had the teaching of the apostles. They had the teaching of their leaders that was handed down. 
over the years, and they might have a book or two. But many of the churches didn't have the whole New Testament. And what we have is a tremendous blessing listed uh, in Athanasius' Easter letter. He's the reason they, uh, they call the Council of Chalcedon after this because he listed 27 books that are a part of the canon, he said, a part of the measuring stick that fit with the New Testament scriptures. And then he lists a bunch of others and said these are also read in many of the churches. But they're not authoritative in all the churches. And so Chalcedon, the, the, all the bishops, well, one of the early writers said the roads were filled with galloping bishops. You know, I get this picture of uh, something from Monty Python, you know. Um, <laughs> galloping, you know. <laughs> galloping bishops. Maybe you've seen it. <laughs> and a slave running along behind with coconuts going, puck a puck, puck a puck, puck a puck. <laughs> Oh, it's sick. But anyway, um, it's, it's, so, it's so much fun to think about these guys galloping from one place to another. Thirteen years later, the Council of Chalcedon met, and they decided that this list of 27 in Athanasius' Easter letter, which he sent out to all the churches, these 27 are the ones that are accepted in all the churches, east and west. Turkey would be considered east. And Rome and, and the areas over here on the other end of the Mediterranean be considered the West. Well, the Western Church had some books that the Eastern Church didn't accept. And the Eastern Church had a bunch of books that the Western Church didn't accept. And so when the bishops got together, they said, which of these books has authority in your churches? And the books that had authority, apostolic authority, in all the churches are the 27 that we now have. Now that's out of about 5,000 books that were floating around in the first century. Hundreds in Greek, hundreds in, Roma, in Latin, uh, hundreds in other languages. Uh, and so out of all those books, these 27 were accepted as authoritative in all the churches. Okay? So, Ephesians, under that title now, some of the later manuscripts insert in brackets the words in Epheso, which means in, in Ephesus. Um, in other places, the Apostle Paul says to the churches, be sure to read the letter to the Laodiceans. Well, we don't have that letter unless this is it. And that's why many scholars believe this is it. Now, let me take you through Ephesians. This thing right here, uh, it's Mickey's fault. Uh, Mickey asked me a question about 666 in the book of Revelation. And John says it takes wisdom and, calculate, uh, wisdom and insight to calculate the number of the beast. And the number is a man's number. Well, if you go back to the Hebrew numbering system, the wisdom and insight that he's referring to, I think, refers to the, to the Hebrew numbering system. Wisdom and insight are the two highest levels of Hebrew wisdom. And so you take these letters and add the total, and it spells out Kaisar Neron, 
I'm pretty sure it's accurate because whoever, somebody did a major manuscript back in the third century that spelled it 616, left out the last N. This guy didn't know Hebrew well enough to know that every pagan name, like my name, Mark, is pagan, that's Greek. Uh, comes from actually uh, Latin, the god Mars. And so Mark, uh, if you said it in Hebrew, it would be Markon. If you said Luke in, in Hebrew, it would be Lukon. In other words, all pagan names have to have an N on the end. It's called noon energeticus in the grammar. We have it like this in English. We don't say a elephant. Well, maybe somebody, you know, <laughs> Oklahoma might. But <laughs> I had an apple for lunch, you know. Uh, but you see the word, the letter N comes in there for certain words uh, at certain times. And uh, in, in Hebrew, it's called noon energeticus. It's an energized noon that just kind of jumps in there at different times, a letter of the alphabet. If you take that out, here's this one manuscript. It just spells Kaisar Nero. Normally, it would be Kaisar Neron. But I, I just thought that might be interesting to some of you. And it's, uh, it's like I said, it's uh, Mickey's fault. <laughs> okay. Uh, what I want to do tonight is look at an overview under, under three headings, an overview of Ephesians. Now, the first thing about any epistle is called the epistolary form. And every single letter of the Apostle Paul follows this prescribed order. It's the author, the recipient, the greeting, uh, the prayer, and then the body of the letter. And that's how, it, how it's all, every letter of Paul is like this. Does that spell something? Arg Paul Barrier. The author, the recipient, the greeting, the prayer, and you'll see it right here in Ephesians. And you'll see it in Colossians. You'll see it in Thessalonians. And every letter that Paul writes, he judges on three, three categories. Every church he writes, he judges that church by three categories, which you could probably guess would be faith, hope, and love. And in the Ephesian epistle, when he starts out, he says, look what he says. Um, verse 15 where the prayer begins in chapter 1 for this reason ever since I've heard about your faith there's the first one in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints I have not stopped giving thanks for you now where is hope well if you go down to verse 18 you'll see that he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. So Ephesus is really a book about hope. 
I want you to know the hope that you've been called to. And when you read this book, you'll read about hope. I did my master's thesis back eons ago, um, many, many years ago, on the, on the word hope. And the word hope is, has 17 different words and phrases in the Bible translated by that one little four-letter English word. Isn't that amazing? 17 words, 10 in Hebrew, and 7 in Greek in the New Testament, translated by that one little four-letter English word, hope. It's kind of like we were talking earlier about love. You know, there's four words for love. Each one has a different meaning, and then one of them has a meaning that covers all of them. And uh, Hebrew has, has a similar thing. Um, but God's going to tell us in this book about hope. What is the Christian's hope? The first thing he says is, I'm going to give you a three-point outline, and I'll just tell you, I've struggled with Ephesians more than any other book in the New Testament. I struggled with Ephesians harder than I did with Revelation. Revelation is actually very simple, but Ephesians is very complex. I had all these ideas about Ephesians. I looked at it in the Greek text, and I read it over and over. And it just didn't all fit together until I read a little thin paperback by a guy by the name of Ni Tosheng, a uh, Chinese Christian. There were over 30 books written from his notes, but the one book he wrote is entitled, I can't spell, Aslexia Disfects Many People Like Pee and Moon. <laughs> Sit, walk, stand. That's the title of the book by Watchman Nee. He goes by Watchman. Uh, nee Tosheng is his name. But he goes by Watchman Nee. And the title of his book is about yay thick, Sit, Walk, Stand. And for the first time in my life, Ephesians fell together when I studied this book. So glad I ran across his writing. The uh, Christian Crusade puts out 30 other books that were written out of Watchman Nee's notes. The Chinese Communists, when Watchman Nee was in China teaching in the church, sent a beautiful woman into the church to try to seduce Watchman Nee. Her, their purpose was to destroy his leadership in the church. They wanted anything to destroy his leadership. Well, he didn't bite. He didn't even nibble. He wasn't interested. And this beautiful woman kept trying to, you know, she became the secretary uh, of a couple of people in his church, and she kept working with him, but he just, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. And so after that, they sent false witnesses into the church. And they accused him of going against Mao Zedong. And uh, he was arrested and taken to prison where he was tortured and killed. Now that's happening all over China. I don't know if you know about that. But just recently, the government granted the right to publish one 
what is it, 10 million Bibles. No, 100 million Bibles. 100 million Bibles in, in China. One for every 10 people in the country of China. That's amazing. That's a complete change from the recent past. Uh, but it's only allowable through a certain church there that's, that's given the official okie-dokie uh, from the government. You know, so they're going to put out 100 million Bibles, one for every 10 people in China. I just read this recently in uh, American Bible Society literature. That's an amazing thing. That's new. But there are other Christians who are being tortured right now in prison in China. You know, we don't hear it. Our media doesn't tell us much about what's going, in, going on in most of the world about Christians. Uh, you've heard of Darfur, probably, or uh, the Sudan. You've heard about people dying there. The Muslim government in the Sudan is bombing Christian hospitals and schools, trying to kill all the Christians, including especially the young ones who won't grow up to be their enemies. They're also kidnapping. And they, they pay people to kidnap Christian children so they can raise them, force them to be raised as Muslims. Uh, that's not just Sudan. That's going on all over the world. Uh, we have brothers and sisters that we don't even think about on a regular basis. The book of Hebrews says we ought to pray for them as though we were there with them. Believe me, if, if you were there in a prison camp with these people, you would be praying. Uh, Malaysia. Uh, and the next door uh, to that, Indonesia, uh, the Muslims have declared jihad against the Christians. And they're doing terrible things to them. They're running through churches in, in Pakistan. You probably know this. Throwing hand grenades in the aisles of churches and running on through while churches are doing worship and killing people. And we, we just have it so good here. You know, we have so many different translations. We can sit around and shine our lights in each other's eyes. And, you know, we don't even really pay much attention to what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, and that's just the beginning. But I don't want to get off on that. The first point in the book is sit. Chapter 1, verse 3. Sounds just like First Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Where did he bless us? In the heavenly realms in Christ. The first point of the book is we sit in Christ in heaven. We have already won the victory. We sit in heaven, in Christ. If it's not clear enough to you there, let me read a little bit more and then go on to chapter 2. He goes on in verse 4, for he chose us in him. You know, if you, if you go through the first two chapters and underline all the times it says in him, in Christ, in the one he loves, uh, you'll probably underline over 20 times. He wants us to see that we're in Christ. Now, if we're in Christ, where is Christ? He's sitting at God's right hand. He's in heaven. So in a spiritual reality, we're already there. We've already got the victory. We've already won. 
He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now, how did he do that? See, I believe that, but I don't understand it. How could he have known us? I tell my students, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Think about that. God didn't go, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, he just, you know, when the Bible says God remembered Noah, it's not like, oh, I forgot. You know, it's, he knows all things at all times. He's never learned anything. He's God. You know, nothing ever occurred to him. And so when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, the book of Revelation, John understood he said the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. What an amazing statement that is. God's absolute decision, because he is alpha and omega, both ends and everything in between, first and last, beginning and end, you know, we, we can't understand that kind of knowledge. But he chose us in Christ and he seated us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Christ is the one through whom God created the universe. And the more we know about the universe, I am blown away by the Hubble telescope pictures online. They say that there's over a hundred billion galaxies bigger than the Milky Way. Milky Way is kind of small compared to most of them. We're kind of out on the edge of everything in our galaxy. We're very fortunate. <laughs> fortunate. They call it the anthropic principle. People couldn't exist if we had a white sun where our yellow one now is. We would be a rotating cinder in space. Uh, everything has to be exactly the way it is for us to exist us to live. We know how fragile it is. The, the ozone layer, the, the polar ice caps, you know, we know how fragile this is. We're barely able to survive. We know that, that we're fragile beings. Uh, you go through a hurricane one time or a tornado and you'll realize how fragile you are. Uh, we're temporary. Here today, gone tomorrow. Um, you know, nothing personal, but that's just how it is. <laughs> and God is not like that. And the early people on earth who were created to live forever, who lived over 900 years, can you imagine? If you lived 900 years, you could have known Chris Columbus. You, you could have known Bernard of Clairvaux, clear back in the 12th century if you lived that long. Uh, maybe you've seen the, the two guys that do this uh, humor thing about the 2,000-year-old man. You ever see that? It probably dates me, but it's back a ways. Two Jewish comedians do this 2,000-year-old man. You're 2,000 years old? Yeah. Well, did you know Jesus? Yeah, he was a good boy. Good Jewish boy, you know. He said, well, did you know Joan of Arc? He said, yeah, I used to date Joni. <laughs> she had this thing, I got to save France. And 
I got to save Francis. He said, he said, I got so tired of it. I said, you go save Francis. I'm going to go wash up. You know, <laughs> just very funny stuff. But imagine living a thousand years. You could remember things that happened. You could, you could know maybe 30 or 40 or 50 generations of your family. You know, in the next world, we're going to know those people. We're going to sit at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus says so. When he says it, you can accept it. Take it to the bank. We'll, we'll meet our great, 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 great believing grandparents and perhaps our great, 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 great grandchildren. We believe that. I hope so. It's just, it's, it's a mind-boggling thing. People like Methuselah would have known all those great, 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 great. And imagine calling him, hey, great, 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 grandson. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. But when God created the universe, he created people live forever. If they had eaten from the tree of life, they would still be alive in their sin. I don't want that. I'm aiming for 100. I, I think I can make it to 100. I, I have... Uh, an uncle that's 95, had another uncle that died last year, is 106. Um, I tell my students at 71, I can do everything I could do when I was 18. Just shows you how pathetic I was at 18. <laughs> <laughs> but I am aiming for 100. I, you know, whether I'm, people may not make, let me make it, I don't know, but it's up to God. But he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. The reason he chose us is to be holy and blameless. See, people want to talk about predestination, who's predestined and who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell, but they don't want to talk about what predestined is for. Romans 8, uh, verse 29 30 says, Those God foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why we're predestined, to be like Jesus. That's why he chose us in him, so we would grow up to be like him. You know, God only had one son. And he brought us into his house so we could learn to be like our older brother. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. We're going to spend some time on these words later on. But I want you to see that God wants us to be secure. And when you go over to the second chapter, if you don't see it clearly there in the first, you will see it clearly in the second chapter that we were chosen and we were placed in Christ and that we're seated there in the heavenly places with Jesus. Chapter 2. Somebody said chapter 2 has the biggest but in the Bible. But, okay, listen to this. As for you, you who were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. There's some heavy-duty theology there. Who's the, who's the ruler of the kingdom of the air? The prince of the power of the air, it's called. This is Satan. And we used to follow his way. And if you live to be a certain age, I was 20 when I became a Christian, and by that time I was following the devil. And I was doing exactly what the devil wanted me to do. And you talk about changing habits. When you, I have a friend who was 49. He was baptized and married on the same day. That's scary. And, you know, complete transformation. He had lived for 49 years for himself and the devil. And now all of a sudden, he's living for Jesus. And he had all these terrible habits. And he struggled with those habits, trying to overcome them. And he's, he's really overcoming. The, the whole concept of overcoming in Scripture is winning against sin, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And so when you study this, this second chapter, you used to be like this. You followed the devil. And then look at verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, in other words, the lusts of the flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath or objects of wrath. God's wrath rested on us. But look at this next verse. This is the big but, verse 4. But, the Greek text says, but God. I love that. NIV kind of wimps out and changes a little bit. All the translations have their own quirks, but the, the Greek text says, but God, who is rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us. Look what he's done. Three things. Made us alive with Christ, even when you were dead in your transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You get those three verbs? But God made you alive together with Christ. Wait a minute, when, when did he make Christ alive? In the tomb. Because up to that time, Jesus had been alive. And until he died on the cross, see, by our faith, this is amazing to me. This is what the, the gospel teaches. By our faith, we enter into Christ on the cross. By our faith, we are taken down with him. And we are, as he says here, buried with Christ by baptism into death. But then God made Jesus alive, and when he did that, he made us alive with him. And God raised Jesus up, and when he did that, he raised us up with him. And God seated him in the heavenly places in Christ, and when he did that, he seated us in him. And that's what it says. It doesn't say, you did it. That's why it's sit, see. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. God did it. 
You just sit there. You sit in the heavenly places in Christ, and you've done nothing for it. God did it. God made you alive with Christ, raised you up with Christ, and seated you in the heavenly places in Christ. That's, that's the point of Ephesians. Yeah, makes you want to jump up and down, doesn't it? Or get fall on your knees and say, thank you. This is amazing. It is by grace you've been saved. Not by anything you've done. Later he says that you're saved by grace, not by works, so nobody can boast. If there's any works that save you, it's Jesus' works. His miracles, his death and burial and resurrection. That's it. And that means that we're a member of the family of God, each one of us. Our daughter, uh, when she was little, she was Danielle. We called her by her middle name like her mom. Paula's first name is Joyce. Nobody knows her by that, except the IRS. Uh, and, they, and they know her well. <laughs> but, uh, but her middle name's Paula, and that's what she goes by. And our daughter's name is Rebecca Danielle. And we call her Danielle, and all her friends that are old friends call her Danny or Danielle. And uh, when she was little, she had learned to ride her trike. She was about three years old, maybe. And I was at home with her, and Paula was off on one of her eternal shopping spree. No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> she was, I think she was actually at a women's retreat studying the Bible, so it's probably, you know, she's a better woman than that. So... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm at home with our daughter and with our baby son, and it was as long as I could stand it. And uh, something about men not being wired certain ways, you know, and women being wired for it. Now, when the kids got out of diapers, great. I was ready to go, you know. Uh, and I did take our kids out one-on-one -on -one every month. Uh, and if I forgot, they'd remind me. And there was no, there were no taboos. They told me everything. They shared everything. And I always told them they could say anything as long as they showed respect. And, you know, in the teen years, I had to keep reminding them about the respect part. But they always were honest with me. My son never once lied to me. Uh, our daughter, when she was three, was, loved riding her tricycle. And the garage door outside was open. And I told her, I will take you out and we'll ride the tricycle, but let me finish what I'm doing. I was doing some study on something. I went in the back bedroom. I heard the door open and close. I went out there and said, Danielle? Marco was sleeping, and uh, she, she was gone. She'd gone out in the garage, and she started, got on her trike and was riding down the drive heading for the street. And I ran out and took her off the trike, trike and brought her in. Please don't do that. You know, I explained to her, I'm going to take you around the block in just a little bit. We'll walk around the block. We'll walk down to one end and back down to the other end and then come back. And uh, just wait on me to finish. And I went in the back, and she promised that she wouldn't do it again. And then I heard the door open and close. And so I went out and got her off the trike and went in the house and reached up on the refrigerator where we kept the, I called it the inhibitor, the, uh, <laughs> wooden spoon about that long and I whacked her a couple times and she you know the lower lip gets out there in the way and, and she
she promised me she wouldn't go out until I was ready, and I said, okay. And so I went in the back room, and it wasn't two minutes. I heard the door open and close. And so she's no longer in our family. Uh, <coughs> Here's my question. How many times do you have to disobey before God kicks you out? What's it going to take? See, he wants us to be secure. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Right now we're seated in him in the heavenly places. And I love what Colossians 3 says. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Can't beat that. We're protected. Peter says our heaven is guaranteed for us. And it will not spoil, it will not fade, it will not rust. God has it for us. We sit in the heavenly places. That's the first three chapters. Okay. Shotgun. Yes. That's right. I should have done that first. That's what I, I should have said. I'll take you now, and then I'll do my work. You know. But I'm, I'm kind of freaky about doing, getting my work done once I've started. I just hate to stop, but. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But she she's still a part of our family. <laughs> In fact, she's she and she and she and our son have given us seven beautiful grandkids. One of them is two inches taller than I am and then they're from here on up. Now, the second point of Paul's thing, and I'm not going to go as long as you might think, because the second point doesn't take as long as the first. The, the first is the hard part. We, we've already got the victory. The second part, you know, the churches I've been in, I see people who are very insecure. You know, we actually are in the heavenly places, and we need to start living like we're in the heavenly places. Uh, Paul says, set your mind on things above, or Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You know, set your minds on these things, not on earthly things. Because God has you hidden in him, protected. Now, walk. We walk in Christ. This is an abbreviation in the manuscripts for Jesus or for Christ because it's the first letter of Christos in Greek. Uh, that's the one they use. For, for God, they use this abbreviation, the first letter of Theos, which is the Greek word for God. So we walk in Christ on earth. So we don't walk in heaven. It's not laziness, it's just, well, maybe it is. Okay, so anyway, 
We walk in Christ on earth. We don't walk in heaven. Do you notice that? We sit in heaven. Where we walk is here. Walk is the Hebrew word, the old Hebrew word, way back there, halakha, which is rules of behavior. Paul always starts off with the theology, the heavenly stuff. Then he moves to the earthly stuff. Because the earthly can make sense only if you know this. See, now that we're in Christ in heaven, now that we have one, you know, he's given us this, now how are we supposed to walk here? Look at chapter uh, 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, I, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling in which you have been called. If you have NIV, it says to live a life. But the, the word that's behind that is the word peripateo, walk. And <clears throat> walking means how you live. How are we supposed to live? Well, we're supposed to live worthy, he says here. Walk worthy of the calling that you've received. How do you do that? Well, you keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You don't sit in judgment on people. You get along. You bear with one another. If you've been in the church for more than six months, you already know you have to bear with certain people in the church. And sometimes you're the one being born with, you know. <laughs> Nothing personal, Don, but, you know. <laughs> but this passage, he goes on and talks about walking in ministry. And then he talks about walking as children of light. And then when you get to chapter 5, look what he says. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We should be willing to give up whatever it takes to help our brother to grow to be like Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul says, if eating meat will harm my brother, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. In chapter 14 of Romans, he says, if drinking wine is going to harm my brother, I will never drink wine as long as I live. So it's basically a matter of living a life of love. That's the essence of how we're supposed to walk here on earth. What does the word love mean? You know, most people know the word. Agape. Let me give you the biblical definition of this word. Helping people. If any one of you has the goods of this world and see your brother in need and close up your heart against him, how have you loved him? 1 John 2, verse 16. John defines love as helping people in need. Love is not a feeling. You know, some loves are feelings, like we've talked about the four loves. Eros is a feeling. It's a sexual feeling. We get the word erotic from that. Um, storge is a word for family devotion. Uh, even wolves take care of their, take care of their babies. You know. uh, and, of course, in our culture, we kill them. Fifty million children 
aborted so far. How many did Hitler kill? Seven million adults. Stalin killed more than that. Pol Pot killed more than that. We've killed 50 million. When my son went to class in kindergarten, a third of his schoolmates didn't show up. What's going to happen to this country? Who's going to pay for this? Maybe this is part of the problem that we're having. You know, maybe. See, it's, it's all about helping people. Putting somebody to death, that's an ancient thing. That was done clear back with the first twins in Genesis. Cain and Abel. You know, killing somebody is not hard. Helping people is a hard thing. You watch these people that spend their lives in service at food banks and in the inner city and giving clothing to the poor. Those are the people who know how to love. And those are the people who suffer. If you love people, you will end up suffering. Look at Jesus. Walking Christ on earth. The last one. Chapter 6. 10 and following. Okay, this is chapters 1 through 3. This is 4, 1 through 6, 9. How to walk. And then chapter 6, verse 10. I'm almost done for tonight. He says, and you know, in Philippians, he says, finally, twice. Kind of like some preachers I know. Uh, you know, two conclusions. But here, he says, finally, one time. And here it is. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. So you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's the first use of the word stand. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is an amazing statement. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul always names four when he starts talking about spiritual forces. Because four is the Hebrew number for universality. You may remember hearing me say that when we studied Revelation or Genesis. The number four, north, south, east, west. You know, it, it's the universal number. And so when he talks about our struggle, our agony, our fight, our wrestling, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against some other person or some other denomination. Our struggle is against the forces of wickedness. And he names four categories. And he does the same thing over in Colossians. He says there that uh, Jesus created, uh, let, me, let me start at the beginning, uh, verse 15 of Colossians 1. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being. What came into being through him were powers, principalities, authorities, and forces 
of the spiritual realm. He names four in every case he talks about spiritual because it's a universal phenomenon. The, the uh, rabbis believed that the world around us was filled, the air around us is filled with angels and demons at war with each other. Any of you read any of Frank Peretti's? Okay. Uh, makes me realize I don't pray enough. That's the one lesson I got out of Frank Peretti's books. Uh, he talks about the spiritual warfare between angels and demons going on all the time. And this is how, the, this is how Paul sees it. These things are in the spiritual forces of wickedness are in the heavenly places where we are. That's why Satan can still impinge upon us, why he can still attack us. This is why we need the full armor of God. I look at this passage. I've got a sermon on this passage. <clears throat> it's God's power. It's God's armor. And it's God's victory. But it's our battle. And that's why he says stand. Let me read on. Verse 13, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. There's a second use. After you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. And he goes on and talks about the items of armor that the, that the Roman soldiers wore. Uh, and we'll talk about that at another time, but I want you to see four uses of the word stand. Why does he say, after he says we sit, we walk, why does he say stand? I used to think, you know, he really ought to say advance against the devil. But you don't have to. Watchman Nee in his book says, Christians don't fight for victory. Christians fight from victory. You get it? He says Christianity begins not with a do, but with a done. Wow. We stand. And all the items of armor are for the front. There's nothing for the back. We don't turn our back on the devil. We stand. And how do we conquer him? If you read on down, he says it's by the word of God. And if you look at that text, it's not talking about the Bible. The word word there is the Greek word hrema, the spoken word of God. See, to, to beat Satan, you've got to know the word. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times against Satan. Because he knew the word the author of it, but he probably also had to study it in school like every other Jewish kid, boy, not girls. Women didn't get to study the Torah. What a tragedy. Any of you see the movie Yentl? It's worth seeing. Uh, Barbara Streisand, in spite of that, it's worth seeing. Uh, it's really an excellent movie because it shows that girls were not allowed to study. In Judaism. Women, if you see a list of the ancient world where women stood, you know, you got priests, you got the high priest, you got priests, prophets, uh, you got, of course, the king back when they had a, a king, and you got several others, and then you got slaves, 
men, you got women. The Orthodox Jewish prayer that's still spoken by Orthodox Jews, I thank you, O God, that you did not create me a dog or a woman. A dog, that means Gentile. That's us in this room. What a tragedy. You know, it wasn't God's plan. That was a patriarchal society gone amok. It's like Islam. You know, women are property to be owned. And you can do anything you want with them. Beat them up. Check out the movie sometime, Not Without My Daughter. Sally Field. There's some good movies out there. You've got to find them. They're out there. Stand firm. Keep the faith. Stand where you are. Don't change what you believe. And you've already won the victory. And when Satan attacks you, respond with the word. You know, I used to be tempted, and sometimes still am, to get drunk. Just go get something and get drunk. I memorized Ephesians 5, 18 and following, where he says, Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It goes on and on from there. Ladies, it says, Submitting to your husband as to the Lord. Guys, it says, Love your the, the next command after be filled with the Spirit is, husbands, love your wives. That means help her. It means get off the couch and go help her with the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> A little toe stomping. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I want to stop and see what questions you have on Ephesians. And every night, if you have any questions, you can write them down. If you think of something that you want to ask, write them down, because otherwise you won't remember when the time comes. This was recorded, but you'll repeat the question. I will do that, if there are any. Not everyone at once. If China's opening up to Christ and uh, America seems to be closing up to Christ, what does that bode for our future? Good question. I think that somebody's going to have to pay the bill for this country. I think what's going on in Europe right now, uh, the austerity measures in Greece and other places are so unpopular that you can't get into office if you, if you run to try to stop spending. And that same thing happening here, of course. We've got people who don't understand that we can't keep spending beyond what we're bringing in. It's just insanity. What's going to happen? Uh, I'm buying silver every chance I get. Um, I'm not a panicky person, but I can see the handwriting on the wall. And uh, I believe that 
I believe that bad things are in store for this country. I think we're going to lose our position in the world as the greatest country in the world. If, the, if it keeps on the way it's going. You know, there may be somebody who will be able to put a stop to it. I don't know. But China, did you know that the church is growing at a rate of 83,000 people per hour? That, the book just came out a year ago in January, so it's, it's already out of date. 16 months ago, 17 months ago, from Gordon-Conwell University, <coughs> Intercultural Studies. They've been all over the world. They've checked their facts, and they say 83,000, 17, 18 months ago, 83,000 people an hour are coming to Christ. That's 2.1 million in a day. Now at that rate, you know, with 6 billion people, 7 billion people in the world, it's going to take a long, long time to win the world at that rate. We need to pray that God will establish his kingdom even faster. What's the answer to the Muslim crisis? They need to be converted. I'm praying that God will send dreams and vision. My wife and I prayed that for 30 years, that God will send dreams and visions to the Muslim leaders. We had a guy speak in our chapel who was a follower of Islam until he had this dream over and over of falling into a lake of fire. And finally, it scared him so badly, he found somebody to teach him about that, and the person told him the gospel, and he believed it. And when I told him we'd been praying for 30 years that God would send dreams and visions, he said, you're the reason I'm a Christian. <laughs> he did. And I said, no, you know, God's the reason. But God can reach these people that we can't reach. Um, I've read the Koran through and through in several different translations. I wish I had Arabic. I didn't study that. Uh, I found two mistakes in it. Uh, one is that God did not have a son. The other is that Ishmael was the one sacrificed rather than Isaac. You know, rewriting history over 2,000 years after it happened. Um, but there's a lot of truth in there, too, and a lot of scripture. I don't know if you know that the Koran quotes a lot of Old Testament and talks about John the Baptist. And the Koran even says that Jesus will be the one through whom God judges the world. But Jesus didn't die on a cross in Islam. In, in one branch of Islam, Judas died on the cross. And there's no resurrection, according to that. But they still believe in a life after death. It's a strange thing. But what's going to happen to this country? We can't go on the way we are. If somebody puts a stop to it in high places, we may have a chance. But it's going to cost us. Any other comments or questions? Mickey. Yes, they are. Uh, there's, a, there's two sets. Um, one of them is the Menia Classics, M-I-G-N-E. <coughs> the, the trouble with them is that they're, they're either in Latin or Greek, and the foreword is in French, you know, which is a big help. Um, but there are, SMU, for example, has the whole set, and it's probably around 5,000 books. And then there are other books that are also outside of that 
types that are also uh, known in the first century. The main ones that were in the Eastern Church were like the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, the Didache of the Apostles, the Teaching of the Apostles, um, which was written between 50 and 100. Uh, and then uh, there's another one called uh, Clement of Rome, First Clement, C-L-E-M-E-N-T. And he writes a letter to the Corinthians and tells them to pay attention to what Paul wrote because they were in rebellion against the elders. I've seen churches that have been split wide open where the deacons take on the elders. And that's what the Corinthian church is doing. And that's upside down. Uh, any other comments or questions? Uh, I recommend the Apostolic Fathers for you. You can find those in English, and they're really good reading. They're they're interesting. John. Um, yeah, there it's sit, walk. No, it's walk, stand, and sit. It's the opposite direction. Yeah, because there he's talking about. You're talking about Psalm 1-1, the very, the very first one. Uh, walking means behaving as these people behave, the wicked, which is the broadest term for wicked in the Old Testament. And then the second one is uh, standing in the way of sinners. And so this is, you know, sharing in their way and then sitting in the seat of the scoffer. And so this is really a digression going the opposite direction of this thing. This is God's work, and that's human work over there, that psalm. And you're safe. It, it says, blessed is the man who didn't do these things. Yeah. But his delight's in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree transplanted by channels of water. You know, what a wonderful psalm that is. Any other comments or questions? Don't want to keep you. Anytime we get toward the end of a session, if you need to go, don't want to stay for the Q and A. That's fine. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you provided food for us physically and spiritually tonight. We're thankful that you are our God, that you are our King. We're thankful, Father, for your Son Jesus, who has done everything right and save those of us who have not. And we're so grateful. We're thankful, Father, that you saved us, that you walk with us in this world, and that you help us take our stand against the devil. I pray that our studies will bring glory to you and help us to grow to be like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.